Good morning. Why don't we open up in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. This morning we're going to be looking at, I guess what is, what is the third of these three verses that have caused so much debate and disagreement. Um, and I guess as somewhat of a theologian myself, I don't know, can I call myself a theologian? I don't know. I've always debated, what point is someone a theologian? Is it when they, they have a PhD and they teach in a school? Or is it just when they decide to call themselves that? I don't know. I'll let you decide. But um, the, the debate on these texts has been a necessary one. I don't want to come across like I'm saying, you know, these people just don't have any idea what they're talking about, and this shouldn't have been a debate, and we shouldn't have talked about it. It's, it's necessary. We want to know what Scripture means and what Scripture says, and in order to do that, uh, we have to have some back and forth and to see people's perspectives on the Scripture. Because we believe that Scripture speaks for itself, but I believe, I hope you do too, that I've got some sinful blinders over my eyes and over my ears that often make it difficult me difficult for me to hear what the Scripture says. And I need brothers and sisters who see things differently to speak into my life. And so the, the debate, the, the discussions, they've been necessary because we want to see the full picture. Uh, but I, I will say this. I think by the time that we get to these three verse and verses, we've often maybe put ourselves in debate mode. Uh, we're, we're back on our heels, and we've often forgotten the, the purpose of the text, the context of the text, which is believers' suffering. That's the context of the text. Now, I think often we would, we, would, we would think about the times that we've heard or discussed or debated stuff like predestination and foreknowledge and calling and choosing an election. And the last thing we would think about is that Paul, that the Spirit of God would, would cause Paul to write these words in the midst of that context, wouldn't you? In fact, you, you maybe think of suffering when you think of the debate, but probably just because of the debate itself, that it is suffering to have to listen through it. How many believers in the room have ever struggled under suffering? All of us at some level, right? How, how many of us have found ourselves, perhaps in the midst of difficult times, experiencing perhaps the most treacherous of seasons that life can throw at you. And, and here's what can happen in, in, in our debates if we forget what these texts are about and what they're here for. When we're in the midst of suffering, and I know, I know some of you are, when we're in the midst of suffering, the, the debate is not what's important to us, is it? I know some people suffering right now in ways that, that I can't even fathom. 
great sorrows in their lives, believers, and in the midst of, of their difficulties, the debate over foreknowledge and, and predestination is not, it, that's not what's of interest to them. What, 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 questions, what questions do we ask in the midst of suffering? Why? Yes, exactly. Why? Why is this happening? You know, is there, is there a reason for this? We talked about purpose last week, purpose in suffering. Is there a purpose in what I'm experiencing? Or maybe, maybe something a little different. You know, where, where was God when this tragedy struck? That's a question people ask, isn't it? It's a question believers ask. Perhaps it's a question you've asked. Why, why am I experiencing so much pain right now? Is there, is there meaning in all of this? Or is it random? You know, the, the most secure, steadfast believers can get in a place where they ask questions like that. Because that's where suffering brings us often. And this section of the book of Romans here is written... For the person who is suffering. That's what this is here for. And, and I think we need to grab this verse and bring it back to the point, for the, for the point that it was written. And that is for the believer who is struggling. Uh, the, the debate's good, it's necessary, but we can't forget why Paul wrote this and, and why he wrote it where he did. This is what he's doing in the... In the middle of our sufferings, this is what Paul assures us of. That God is not done with us. That's a question we'll ask, isn't it? Perhaps God has taken his hand off of me. And I'm experiencing this because he has let me go. Have you ever been brought to that point in suffering? If you, if you haven't yet, it's possible and likely that you will be brought to that type of suffering at some point in your life. And Paul writes this text here to assure us that God is not done with us. To, to assure us not to be tempted to think that, that, you're, that you're experiencing this because God is mad at you or because you've done something to deserve condemnation that you haven't lost your salvation in fact we're going to see in, in verse 30 today that glory is still ahead and that what he's doing is preparing you perfectly for it let me read the text and then I want to jump back to verse 1 and show you where we are in the middle of this this conversation that Paul's having with us. Let's just look at verse 26 and forward. He says, Likewise, the Spirit, the Spirit of God, helps us in our weakness. And that weakness is a weakness in persevering through trial. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts 
knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Now, look back a number of verses to the beginning of chapter 8. I just want to, I just want to show you where this starts and why, <clears throat> why we can't be asking those questions in the middle of our suffering. Not that we, we can't ask them, but we can't ask them without knowledge because we've been told already something of ourselves in this context of salvation, in this, in this state of being in Christ. This is where Paul begins in verse 1. He says, there is therefore now, circle that word, highlight the word, bedazzle the word, whatever you have to do to make it stick out in the text. It's an important one. There is therefore now, presently, understand in the, in the midst of your most difficult suffering believer, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means when, when we're in the middle of suffering and we ask this question, perhaps I'm experiencing this because there's something else that I need to work off of myself because Christ's work hasn't been completed. I don't know if we would ever necessarily verbalize those words, but often we can think those thoughts, can't we? That Jesus did all of the work in my justification except a tiny bit. And I'm, I remember that I'm still a sinner and I prove it every day by doing things. And there's something there that... I need to experience this suffering in order to pay the rest of the way into my justification. I mean, have you thought like that before? Have you been tempted to think like that before? This is where Paul starts this text off. So this is the foundation for where we, we are now in verses 28 through 30 here. We, we, we can't be asking those questions because Christ has already stood condemned in our place. There's no condemnation for us. And you see verse 3? It's for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. We couldn't do it even if we tried. How did he do it? He did it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus stood condemned in our place. Jesus suffered the wrath of God as punishment for our sins in our place. And so in the middle of our sufferings, in the middle of our trials, we can be assured that we are not experiencing those things as punishment. 
We could call it Romans 8, and some have the chapter, the hope of glory. And the meaning of that phrase, the idea of hope in the New Testament, is, is, that, is that of a, of a confident expectation or, or an assurance. Um, uh, uh, something that you can ground yourself on fully, finally, and confidently. We can have a confident expectation of being with Christ. Sinless and free for the rest of eternity. That's what Paul is assuring us of in Romans 8. All the things that came before, chapter 5, 6, 7, all the things that life throws at us, Romans 8 assures us that we have a confident expectation of being with Christ. That's the hope that awaits us. And, and Paul wants us to be confident now that the trials we experience are preparing us for that end. Nothing you experience is an anomaly or an accident. Look at this text with me. I want to, sh- I want to show you just how wonderful this text is. We, we looked at verse 29 last week. We looked at verse 30 the week before. We're going to have to reach back into those a couple of times this morning to understand just how good verse 30 is. Look, look at verse 29 briefly. Just, just a moment here so we can see this pull picture. Paul starts way back before time. It's hard to say way back because that's a, a word that means time, before time, but that's what Paul does. That before time, God did something. We looked at this word foreknew. We decided last week a good interpretation of it is for loved. And that is that God, before time began, decided to set his love on you, particularly believer. It is an amazing concept, isn't it? How sweet it is in the midst of your darkest hour to know confidently that God the Father has loved you from before time began. That's what's being pictured here. And so just right there, we can say, don't don't fret. Don't don't be tempted to think that God doesn't love you because of what you're experiencing. It's not true. He set his love on you before time began. Which means that what you're experiencing now cannot be a result of God not loving you. In fact, it has to be a result of God Deeply loving you, right? I mean, but, it, but isn't that where we go? You might say something like, God doesn't love me. Clearly. Right? Look at the evidence. God doesn't love me. You might say that a, a believer wouldn't say something like that. I've heard it said many times. In conversations around the room, in this room, in the office in the back, it gets said. It's believed. If you, if you look at what's happening to me, this is evidence that God doesn't love me or at least doesn't love me as much as he loves that believer. But the reality, I mean, it couldn't be further from the truth. This text says that God loves you so much 
that he would put you through this to grow you into the image of his son. That he's conforming us to the image of Christ, verse 29 says. And he's doing it to exalt his son above all nations. We, we uh, in our community group, we're going through Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. If you haven't read it, it's, it's a great book. And he confronts, I may have mentioned this, but he confronts some difficult questions about Christianity. And this week's chapter that we went through was on suffering. How can a good, good God allow suffering? And Tim Keller answers it with, with the way that um, the Bible answers it, the way we've been looking at it. But he also goes to a place that we just went here in verse 1 through 3, but I think we often miss. Because we'll view suffering and we'll say, God wouldn't put someone through this who he loves, right? God wouldn't make me experience this if he truly did love me the way that this book says that he does. But look, look back here at verse 1 and 2 and 3 again. Just see this. I want you to see what Christ has done for us. Does anyone doubt that the Father loves the Son? It says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. That is that God, the Father, sent His Son into this world of suffering and suffered on our behalf. And we can't say that God causing suffering in someone's life means that he doesn't love them. Because Christ stepped into our existence, stepped into our reality and experienced suffering in a greater degree than we ever would. I mean, Isaiah calls Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in the, in the middle of our suffering, we can know not only did Jesus come and, and live a perfect sinless life, but Hebrews says that he experienced suffering, experienced our reality on a deeper level than we'll ever experience it because our sin often gets in the way. And then he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And so even in the middle of our sufferings here in these verses, we have God with us, Jesus with us, who experienced this suffering and carries us through it to make us more like Jesus for the exaltation of Christ. That's what's going on here. Now look at verse 30. We'll get to our text here. How does that sound? Verse 30. You may have heard of this verse called the golden chain of redemption. Uh, that is, it sounds fancy. It is fancy. Theologians like to name things fancy things. And so they call it the golden chain of redemption. And uh, I think it's a good name for it. This, this verse, I think, is a hard verse for some people to swallow. But if you can grab hold of this verse, you will not find anything sweeter in the midst of your trials. And I want to show you 
I want to show you why here. Notice these words he uses. He uses four words in, in verse 4 that we'll, we'll look at. But he uses four words, and they're all of a particular person. You, namely. And they're all written in the past tense. That is, that they're already happened. Right? If I said to you, I ate breakfast, that means breakfast happened already. I will eat breakfast means it's going to happen later. I am eating breakfast, it's happening right now. Past tense, this already happened. That's how these words are written. Three of them make sense. One of them doesn't make sense. We'll get to that. Look, look at this. And first of all, we, we need to back up to verse 1 one more time because I need, to see, I need you to see how Paul carries this through. Because you might try to wiggle out of verse 30 and I don't want you to wiggle out of it. I want you to stay right here. Look at verse 1. He names a particular people, a particular person. There is therefore now no condemnation for those. You see that? There's this word those. And he tells you where those people are located. They're located in Christ Jesus. And the word those is kind of a cool word because it speaks not necessarily of a group of people, but a group of individual people. So he's, he's talking to the particular person, but he's grouping them together. So he's not speaking of a group, but of the individual. And so it's a very personal word, and it needs to be. You need to understand how personal this word. He's speaking of you. If you were a believer... This defines you. you. You are not standing here condemned. You are in Christ Jesus. Okay? Now fast forward to verse 28. He uses that word again. And he's still speaking of the same people. Now, I don't know how you do this in my Bible. If there's something that you can't get away from the connection, I'll circle the word and I'll draw a line to the other word and circle it. They're, they're connected and you, you can't disconnect them. I've got a page break, so it makes it a little hard, but that's what I do. Verse 28, he says... And we know that for those, see that? Same word, same people, who love God. And we talked about this two weeks ago. Do you remember who those are? Who are those who love God? Paul's giving a defining characteristic of a Christian. If you are a believer in this room today, you are included in those who love God. That's what the Spirit has done in you. There's our first one. Those who love God, a little bit further, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's the same people. If you're someone who is loving God, who is a believer, who is those who love, who, those who are in Christ, you are also those who are called according to his purpose. It's the same purpose. It's the same person throughout. None of them are lost in the connection. It starts all the way back in eternity past. And it carries it forward all the way into eternity future. Look at verse 29. He uses it again. For those who he, whom he foreknew. Those in Christ. Those who love God. Those who were called according to his purpose. Those whom he foreknew. It's all the same person. It's all the same people. This is good news, by the way. 
If you're someone who's loving God this morning as a believer, that means you were foreknown, foreloved before time began. You were called in time. You were made into someone who loves God. And now he goes on to tell us the rest of the chain. Now, don't ask, don't ask me why. I don't know the answer why. I've asked the question often. Look, I get it. It says I'm, I'm, I'm one who loves God. That's true. I'm a believer. I'm in Christ. Why me? I don't have an answer to that question. In fact, I think one of the most, it frustrates me to no end, when a kid, my, my own, I'm talking about my own, they do something, and it, it just, it's the worst thing ever, and you say, why did you do that? And they look at you in the eyes, and they say, because? You know what I'm talking about? You just go, there has to be a reason. I need a reason for it. Because? And that's all they can give you? It's actually a fantastic answer. It's because it's what I did. Right? That's the answer here for us. I don't know if it's satisfying or not, but you ask the question, why did you set your love on me before time began? Why why am I predestined and called and justified and glorified and all these things? Why? The, The answer for us here is because. That's it. Because I decided to set my love on you before time began. We know it's not because there's anything lovely in us or because we've done something wonderful. That's all been dealt with in these previous chapters. He set his love on us because he did. Now the, now the next chapter, chapter 9, he's going to deal with a different why. Which is, why do you think you can do that, God? Who do you think you are? He's going to deal with that why. But the question we're asking is just, what? Why me? Because. That's what I decided to do. Here's what I want you to see. Look at this. The point here isn't really about predestination. Although you can debate it and you can talk about it. This text deals with it and it's a good text to go to to deal with it. The point is for you to see this chain here of verse 30. Those who are predestined are called. Those who are called are justified. Those who are justified are glorified. There's none lost in between. It's the same group of people throughout. We're to see this chain as unbreakable. That's what he's laying before us. You can't, you can't get away from being called if you're predestined. And you can't get away from predestined if he foreknew you. That's how this text works. We talked a little bit about predestination last week. We don't need to talk about it too much, but that is that God has determined to save you in time. That the, the point at which God came called you and justified you was set in stone before time that he would do that. And we talked about it two weeks ago, this word calling, which takes place in time at some point in your life, that it's effectual. That means that it works. 
And that means that it works 100% of the time. When God calls you to himself, that is to save you, believer, it happens. You come to him. John 6 makes that clear. We looked at John 6. If you are called, you come. If you are someone who has come, it's because you have been called. You can't, you, you can't get around it. And I've, I've read countless people trying many different ways to get around that text in John 6 and make it mean something different, but it can't be done. I've tried to see it a different way. It just can't be done. In fact, there was a guy a few years ago who told Mike and I basically that we just can't understand basic English because we, we, didn't, see, we didn't see John 6 differently. We said, sorry, we just can't see it differently. He still couldn't explain it. We couldn't see any different way around the text. If God calls you, you come. And if you come, it's because you're called. Look at this chain. Foreknew, predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Look, those whom he called, he also justified. You see that? Now, that's, that's the first four book, first chapters of this book. All that happened in those chapters with the description of how a person is made right before God. Because God determined to do that to you and for you. Now, here's what can happen. We're talking about this in, in, in some theological terminology and you can sort of remove yourself from the equation here, can't you? That's not safe to do because that's not how it worked. God came and he called you. And you responded in faith. You're not just a mindless robot. Nobody believes that. He justifies you. That means when he called you, you automatically fell in love with him and responded in faith and were justified. You were made right before God. He declared you innocent and he declared Christ guilty. And so now we're here standing in front of God at this throne room that... This, this judgment seat that Paul lays out in these first four chapters. Guilty with sin. And yet declared innocent because of what Christ has done. That's what's happened so far in this chain. Now, so far all of this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, really, it's not a, it's not a difficult concept necessarily. So far, the chain makes sense. Those he predestined. Okay, that happened in the past. He also called. Okay, that happened in the past. Those he called, he also justified. Okay, that happened in the past. Got it. This has all happened. And so we all sit here in between word three and word four. Have you looked at word four yet? Look how Paul writes it. Those whom he justified... He also glorified. That's past tense. That is, it has already happened. That's what he said. That's what it normally means. Has that happened yet? Have we run into a problem? I can tell you right now, I have not been glorified. Have you been glorified yet? I mean... Have you received your perfect sinless bodies and reside with Christ permanently and perfectly? 
See, look, and I want to I want to show this to you, so you can see why this happens. I bet here. We've been talking about predestination and called and justified. And you've already forgotten why this passage is written, haven't you? You see how that can happen so quickly? That was, what, 15 minutes ago when I laid out why the passage is written? And yet we're all sitting here going, how is this working? How does this work? And wait, how does this work? And we've already set aside the context of the passage. We got to pull that back in and understand why on earth is Paul telling us this? And why would he write the word glorified in the past tense? Here's why Paul uses this this way. It's because your glorification, that is, when you receive your perfect sinless body at the resurrection... Your glorification has already been set in stone by God in the past. It will happen. This chain cannot be broken because God's in charge of it. There's no one lost between foreknowledge and predestination. There's no one lost between predestination and called. There's no one lost between called and justified. There will be no one lost between justified and glorified. Now, why is that important for us? How does that fit in the, in the middle of this context of suffering? What's the point of the passage? You're suffering. Perhaps like a few verses earlier... Your eyes have, have, have been tempted to be turned off of Christ because of the things you've experienced or the things you're experiencing. And you're tempted to think, God has forgotten about me. Perhaps Christ did not fully pay my penalty and I need to suffer some to pay for the rest of it. Believer, God is doing such a great work in you to make you like Christ, to exalt Him above all creation, that this momentary affliction is like a blip on the radar, Paul says. He says in verse 18, this suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. The sure glory, the set in stone glorification that you will receive when you step into the arms of Christ and are welcomed as a good and faithful servant. It's so sure that you can be confident this is set in stone. Whatever trials I may face, whatever may come against me, is not something that's even chipping away at this chain. It has nothing to do with that. It's not trying to take away my justification. It can't. It's not trying to remove my right standing before God. In fact, he tells us that in this in-between of justification and glorification, he's doing this work of making us more like Christ so that when we are raised to new life and we see him face to face, 
we will be like him. That's what he's doing. You see it? We will be conformed to the image of his son. And Jesus will stand there as the firstborn among many brothers. And grab onto this verse in the middle of your suffering. When you're tempted to think that all hope is lost, that God's left, He doesn't know what He's doing, I'm left here to struggle on my own, nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, your salvation is so sure in Christ that Paul can write of the end in the past tense. Isn't that amazing? So take heart, believer. Christ has overcome the world. He's purchased your salvation fully, finally, and completely. Amen? Amen. Why don't we... Let's have the ushers come forward. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper here, which is a reminder to us of God stepping into this world and suffering on our behalf. I think part of why God gave us this ordinance as a, as a thing to do now in the church as we await for the return of Christ and we preach of His glories to the world is a reminder to us that He suffered like we did, like we do. He came and bore our sins in his own body. He was bruised and afflicted. Crushed for our iniquities. Chastisement that brought us peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. He suffered alongside us and we, as his people, have God with us sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession on our behalf. Isn't that good news? So I'm going to pray. The ushers will pass out the elements. Take them at your leisure. Worship Christ in this. Thank Him for what He's done. Perhaps, perhaps you need to spend some time with the Father, asking Him, to remind you afresh that He is with you and that He's carrying you through. Perhaps perhaps singing that song, Blessed Be Your Name, in the midst of suffering is something that you're not able to do. Ask Him to help you be able to do that. Pray that He would use you through this to be able to bring glory to His name in the world. Spend this time with the Father worshiping Christ, and we're going to sing one last song after, after we do that. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have so determined to bring a people to yourself, and you are so confident in your ability to do that, that you would stake your reputation on writing some words that haven't happened yet in the past tense. That's amazing. 
And what it means for us is that our salvation is not based upon what we can and cannot do. Because if it was based on us, we would have lost it a long time ago. Father, it's based on you and your sure word and your steadfastness, your jealousy for your own name and glory. Father, we thank you that we can sit here in the midst of our trials and worship you. Perhaps some, some of us are, find that a difficult thing to do. Father, help them. Be with them. Lighten their hearts with the light of Christ. May they, may they use your word as a, as a window into the things of God to see your glory. Father, be with us now as we worship you in the Lord's Supper. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.